if we can nail those three things down and I can present that in the most simplistic way, I think we can get almost everybody to swim relatively fast. That Triathlon Show, episode three. Welcome back to That Triathlon Show and another interview episode where today I'm chatting to Jerry Rodriguez, who is one of the foremost triathlon swim coaches out there. One quick word before going into the episode. I just want to thank you so very much for all the positive feedback that has been coming in over the last few days. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate it. Keep sending your feedback to me on my email, michael at scientifictriathlon.com or my Twitter or Facebook page, wherever you want to. I'm SciTriat on Twitter and you'll find all the links on the episode. So thank you again to those that have been in touch. I really appreciate that and do keep sending me your feedback and also requests for how to improve this podcast going forward. I always aim to improve and make this the best podcast that it can be. Now, what you learn in today's episode is how to swim faster as a triathlete. And Jerry Rodriguez, who I interview, has a fantastic way of simplifying swimming and really explaining it in a way that you're really able to understand what to do without overcomplicating things and being overwhelmed by the information. So this is one that you definitely, definitely will find valuable. So a little background about Jerry before we dive into the interview. Jerry is the founder of Tower 26, which is a triathlon swimming program in LA, and it attracts hundreds of triathletes and open water swimmers to its pool program and open water swim sessions that run in LA. And Jerry himself is coaching both age group triathletes, of course, through those programs, but also many pro triathletes in terms of their swimming. These are triathletes like Jesse Thomas, Holly Lawrence, who won the 70.3 World Championships in 2016. I think he's had Lionel Sanders in his program. And he also has celebrity people like Jensen Button and Gordon Ramsay. Jensen Button, of course, is a famous Formula One driver. And uh, Gordon Ramsay, you know, the chef, the one who swears a lot. So that's pretty cool. And Jerry has definitely earned his reputation and earned the right to coach those high-level athletes. And he also is the host of the Tower 26B Race Ready podcast, which is definitely one of my very favorite podcasts. And it's super useful, especially if you go back to the beginning of of that podcast and listen to the first few episodes where Jerry and his co-host Jim in a very structured way go into much more detail about the topics that we are talking about in my interview with Jerry today. So I do encourage you to listen to those episodes. And with that said, I don't want to make you wait any longer. I'm sure you're dying to hear what Jerry has to say and learn how it can help you become a better swimmer. So let's go ahead and listen to Jerry. You know, Michael, I've tried to take swimming that I think can be or has been in the past many times made into a complicated topic. And for folks that are new to the sport, if you don't have a significant swim background or collegiate swim background or some relatively um, advanced swimming background, I think reading material that's available and looking at videos on YouTube and so on could be overwhelming. 
And because there's an abundance of information that's available to the listener or to the viewer. So what I've tried to do over 33 years of doing this is to find some key elements. And in this case, these were the, what I think to be the three key elements and, and distill it down to very simplistic terms so we can sort of get these big buckets or main silos that we can create an image in the athlete's mind that if I can nail down these three things, body tautness, which is really structural presence, alignment of the frame, which is holding the frame in a straight line, head, chest, belly button, pelvis, knees, ankles, dead straight line, and then how to go about generating propulsion, which will give us um, velocity, right? If we can nail those three things down and I can present that in the most simplistic way, I think we can get almost everybody to swim relatively fast. And relatively fast is we have a fairly wide margin of error in triathlon from the perspective of we're not going to the Olympic Games in swimming, all right? And the best swimmers at the Olympic or elite level will swim an Ironman course close to 40 minutes. But the fastest swim times at an Ironman is 48 minutes. So we got a 20% variance that we can play with, either in technical and even training protocols. So let's find ways. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to be darn good enough with some major, major anchors in place. And those are the three that I think if we just focused on those and not get caught up in a whole bunch of pebbles and sand, we could have a significant amount of success. Again, this is based on the average person having two or three, maybe four hours a week to dedicate to swimming, triathlon swimming. Okay, thank you. That was a very good answer. So how then would you go about improving shortness, alignment, and propulsion? We go about, Michael, starting with tautness because that's the frame of the body. That's the posture itself. And no matter how much propulsion you put onto a boat, if that boat was very, very soft and um, with poor structural integrity, it's not going to go very fast. So we got to start with body, uh, body tautness. And that's how we hold our body in the water, by the way, which I think is rather difficult to do because we're used to holding our bodies on land. And once we go into the water, the body is uh, subsidized quite a bit or, or weight is displaced. So we have this sense of weightlessness almost when we're in the water on the, the ability to feel what your body is doing to manage, uh, you know, the proprioception movements. What is the body feeling and how do I talk to the muscles to get them to do what I want to do now that my body weight is somewhat suspended? We're almost in a, in a little bit of uh, weightlessness. And that requires a lot of practice and patience. So we do a fair amount of vertical kicking. We do a fair amount of just regular kicking on a kickboard with your face down. So you'd have the back of your head and your butt and your heels touching the surface. There are things on land, by the way, that we do where we'd have the athletes stand, have their arms at their sides, and we'd just tap them on the, on the uh, right shoulder, sort of push the right shoulder towards the, the left, make them resist it, push the, the left shoulder, press them at the center of their chest backwards, press them up in between their shoulder blades forward, and try to get them to resist. And what they're really trying to do is hold their, their frame in place, right? We would do the same thing at the hips, the right hip and the left hip. I'm trying to get the, the athlete to just maintain a good, firm posture on land. So now they get an awareness on, on land, what we're trying to do. We're trying to hold that body sturdy on land. Now let's go in the water and try to do the same thing. So we're trying to really just create this pretty significant body awareness in the water, which is challenging because we spend our time on land. So that would be the tautness, you know, the tautness 
foundational piece. That's number one. That's where you have to start because without that taut frame, it doesn't matter how great your alignment is or how much propulsion you have, you're still not going to swim very fast. And on that note, I remember you making a very good analogy on one of your podcast episodes about tautness and how it can be, it's analogous to a piece of spaghetti before boiling it and after boiling it. And and what you want to do to to improve your tautness is to mimic the before boiling state and as opposed to the after boiling state and i at least found that to be a a very good analogy yes and i think the point that i tried to make there was before we boiled it we could put the spaghetti on on your desktop your tabletop and just tap the back of it and it'll it'll sort of slide across the table but after we've boiled it now granted it has absorbed water but it's lost its integrity right structural integrity so you tapped it it's not going to go anywhere and um that's just a, a very simplistic way of thinking. If your body is very loosey-goosey and, and wobbly almost in the water, it's not going to go very fast. Exactly. So let's move on then to alignment. So once we get into alignment, what I mean by alignment or how I try to define that and create a visual for the, um, for the athlete is consider if we can get our spine to continue up through our neck, through our head and came out of the top of our head, Okay. If you could sort of hang yourself from your spine and then your spine continued down through your, your pelvis area, through the middle of your knees, through your ankles and anchored yourself into the ground. You now have this long straight line from your ankles, through your knees, through your pelvic area, belly button area, sternum, you know, all the way up to the top of your body. Okay. That's a dead straight line. We want to be able to have the body in that position to start with. And then when we swim, Michael, we have some very key boundaries, and I know this almost sounds, some people can sound too linear, but we need to create a visual and a visual representation of what we're trying to achieve. While swimming with your right hand, let's say, we would want the right hand, just the hand, the fingertips to the wrist, just the hand alone while swimming, while it is entering the water and being utilized to present some force beneath the surface, that pattern that it's going to track through, we would want that pattern to stay in a certain geographical territory, let's say. And that territory would be between the center line of your body and your shoulder line. So if we had a line like like the spine line that came all the way up the top through the top of your head and extended another two or three feet above your, your head, dead straight line above, and then we took a line and we drew it off of your shoulder, the tip of your right shoulder. We draw a straight line off the tip of your right shoulder straight up. Now we've got this defined um, area, territory, where we can place our hand at the entry And then we can start executing the power phase, for lack of a very simplistic way of saying it, underwater, where the hand has to stay within that, those guidelines, the center of the body on the right shoulder, the right hand, that is. And it can't go outside of the right shoulder line, and it can't cross over the center line towards the left side. It's got to stay within a very, very defined territory through the entire arm stroke, from the time it enters the water to the time it exits the water. And then the same thing for the left hand. So if we can accomplish these on the left hand, obviously between the center line and the left shoulder line, if we can accomplish this with both hands while keeping the body completely straight, head, sternum, belly button, hips, knees, and ankles, we've now created some really defined guidelines. And therefore, we've nailed down one very important application, and that is um, spatial volume. Because the larger the object and the wider it is, and the more it wiggles around, it takes up more spatial volume. And we want to reduce spatial volume or reduce drag or reduce friction when we're swimming. 
Same on land. We don't want to ride our bikes with our elbows out and big baggy shirts on in, in an erect position, right? We, we're, we're hunched over and elbows are in and heads down and we have on sleek fitting clothes. That's so we can be aerodynamic. Well, in the water, we need to be hydrodynamic. So we need to create some real specific guidelines for that to occur so we can minimize the forces of, of resistance upon us. So rather simplistic, but simple things can uh, become difficult to do at times. They sure can. So what about swim practice or, or drill practice for alignment? Do you have any specific ways that you practice alignment? Well, we use some equipment items that helps the body get into the positions that's needed. So we use an ankle strap. Uh, it's a particular strap that has Velcro on it that holds the ankles together. I don't particularly like using uh, inner tube bicycle tires. We use those for a while, but we've learned how to stretch those <laughs> when we're kicking. So I want the ankles locked in place so they're together. We'll put a pull buoy on and then we'll wear a snorkel. And so that way the head doesn't have to move. It stays stationary, eyes looking straight down, tip of your nose pointing down to the bottom of the pool. Your hips are uh, in place, your, your inner thighs, your adductors are squeezing your pull buoy together so it'll keep your legs straight. And then you've got an ankle strap to keep your ankles together. And then you point your toes to take out any bend in your knees. And now we've got this dead straight body. You know, that, that spine line that I talked about that came out the top of your head and went all the way down through your ankles. That's the dead straight spine line. And then we can execute the arm pull. And because we have the snorkel on, we can actually then track our hand movement from the time it entered the water. We can look forward, take a look and say, okay, there's my hand. It's between those two boundaries that we talked about, the center line and the, sh the right shoulder line, if it's the right hand in this case. And we can track it with eyeballs and just look at the pattern of the hand movement on the water and follow it through and make sure that it's staying in those territories. Once we do that, we're practicing pretty darn good alignment. It's not very complicated. And would I be correct in saying that when you do that, you also really practice tautness since you really have to engage your core muscles to prevent your legs from sinking when you, when you use that ankle strap? Well, you're absolutely right. And it does to some extent. The problem with some people I've found is that because it's a buoy and depending on the composition of the buoy, Some folks can tend to disengage a bit their core because the buoy will tend to float up their hips for them. So what we do over time is with the buoys that we use, we add water to them. It's a particular buoy that has hollow chambers. And we start adding water to the buoy, so we start weighing them down a bit. Then they really have to engage the core. And then at times we take the buoys off and we just leave the ankle straps on only with the snorkels. You really have to core engage. But to your point, yes. Okay, good. All right. And then finally, propulsion. How can we improve our propulsion in swimming? You know, Michael, propulsion can be a rather complicated topic, and we can go listen to many, many experts in the swimming arena. And even now, some of them are trying to present themselves in the triathlon space. Again, I think it can be made to be overly complicated, and I just do not believe it needs to be. Basically, when I look at non-swimmers, those who have not competed in swim competitions growing up as kids at some reasonably proficient level. Those folks have a few very common mistakes pretty much across the board. The most common mistake I have found is lack of tension in one's hand. So the hand enters the water, it starts executing some form of uh, power, pulling or pushing, whichever words we want to use at times it is pulling at another part of the stroke there is pushing but let's keep it simple and just call it a, a hand movement underwater that's trying to create some propulsion 
that hand needs to have a certain amount of firmness to it. Again, structural integrity, similar to the frame of the body, needs to be held firmly, toughly. And what we've noticed over years and years of coaching is that many athletes, once their hands are in the water, the, the hand itself, the wrist on the palm goes floppy. And I use the term petting the kitty. It's like we're petting a kitten. So we have this sort of gentle hand because we know how we pet a kitten very softly because they're cute and they're small. We'll pet them very carefully and very gingerly. But we'll pet a horse differently or a, a firm dog. We'll use a much firmer hand to give it a, you know, a love pet type thing. And a horse would be a much firmer hand. And again, we need to have that firm hand when we're executing the power phase of the swim. Most don't. The hand gets floppy. Therefore, well, think of yourself. If, you, if, if your car broke down and you need to push it, well, you're not just going to have a limp wrist resting against the back of it to push it forward, right? You're going to have a firm wrist. You put it against the trunk of the car and you get a couple of buddies and you push it. So that firmness of the hand is what we need. So that's one of the key elements in the beginning of the stroke and the setup after the setup phase where we get the hand into the right position. We really need the, the athlete to be aware that, yeah, it needs to be firm, very firm. And then we apply you know, the power movement, just basically keeping the fingertips pointed to the bottom of the pool and pushing the hand backwards. And Michael, we can get into all sorts of complications of, of in sweeps and out sweeps and up sweeps and down sweeps and all this stuff. I prefer to keep it very, very simple. We don't need to complicate this anymore. Keep your fingertips pointed down, keep your wrist firm and push that water backwards towards your feet. All right. And then finally, propulsion. How can we improve our propulsion in swimming? And again, do you have any specific exercises or drills that you use to practice this? You know, we have a simple drill that, um, that I created a few years ago. And um, we would initially start using this with a snorkel and fins, and then eventually we'll take the fins off and, and so on. But started and make the drill simple at first, where you would um, you'd have uh, both hands above your head. You'd push off from the wall with your snorkel on so your face is down. You just have the fins on to create a gentle, gentle kick. Or you can wear a pole blade to float the hips up. And um, you would then uh, have your hands extended straight out front, like train tracks out in front of you. And then you would allow both arms to go on the water and bend slightly because you want to have a slight elbow bend. Elbows would uh, then fall beneath the surface, maybe 6 to 12 inches beneath the surface. The hands would then, the forearm and the, and the palm would then fall further down where the hands then come uh, the fingertips are then placed facing the bottom of the pool. So envision this. Now you have a bent arm, elbows pointing outwards, hands beneath your body. Uh, well, they're, they're, they're sort of out front of you slightly beneath your face, fingertips pointing down to the bottom of the pool. Maybe the bend is anywhere from a 40 to 60 degree bend at the elbow. And you hold that position right there, you stabilize it, and you get ready to make one massive propulsive movement backwards. Towards your, towards your hips. Just one big power push, power pull, power push, whatever it may be, but one big accelerated movement. And you'll feel this massive surge of your body forward. And then your hands end up at your hips. You'll pause there for a second. You'll feel the depreciation of speed because of water and friction. And you'll just sneak your hands back up onto your body and get to the start position again and then set up again. Do the same thing over and over. So we're trying to create this a proper setup, and then a big propulsive phase where we could actually feel that giant force movement forward. When we don't do it properly, we don't go very far. When we do it really well, the body travels a reasonable distance. Again, it's simple, and I like to keep it that way. 
Interesting. That sounds like a really good drill. And that's one that I haven't tried personally. So I'm definitely curious and, and I'm going to give it a go. So let's move into our next topic. Just a quick note to the listeners that Jerry goes into these topics, shortness, alignment and propulsion in much detail on the Tar 26 V-Race Ready podcast in the first few episodes. So do go and have a listen to that. And our next topic is going to be periodization of swim training for triathletes specifically. So what can you tell us about that, Jerry? You know, it's... um. It's a sexy word, huh? And um, for some folks, it can almost overcomplicate where you think, well, what, what does this all mean? And all we are really doing is taking a season and we break it up into different components. In fact, that's what we talk. It's how I started off our podcast series. It's podcast number one, in fact, the very first one we did. And I, I call this big picture. This is the big, big mile high view of what we do when we prepare an athlete over a time period of a year. I know athletes might look at just a race and sort of look at the, the leaves on the tree. As coaches, we look at the forest, right? And then we get to a section of trees and then a tree and then to the bark and the leaves and so on. So we take the season, we break it down into five components. And, um, and they're rather simple. The first component, uh, we, we start the season off towards the end of the prior year. And we sort of use Kona, uh, the Kona Ironman, the World Championships, is the end of the season. And recognizing there are several races still for some athletes, but for the most part, over 90% of athletes have concluded their season in Kona. So after Kona through the end of the year, that's our, lack of a better term, recovery phase, uh, rejuvenation phase. It's when the body's allowed to rest and repair and recover. And it's the phase where we do a lot of technical training. So we work heavily on mechanics. In fact, we have an entire month dedicated just to tautness, another month dedicated to alignment, and another month to propulsion. It doesn't mean we're not doing some training sessions. They're lighter training sessions. But the emphasis is very technical, and it's mainly overall recovery for the body because the athlete has spent the entire year training and racing. Then once the year starts off, we go into phase two, and you can call that our foundation phase, your big aerobic base training phase. You know, different coaches like to use different words. I just call it phase two. It's our foundation phase. It's where we're going to start laying on the load, training load, so we can become super fit. And that's about a 13-week cycle. 13-week phase, and we run four three-week cycles in it. Three weeks at a time. Each week, uh, there's a little higher volume and intensity. And then we repeat the cycle, where we the, the three-week cycle, where we start. The fourth week would start a little higher than the first week, a little more in volume, a little more intensity. And we repeat this four times for 12 to 13 weeks. So that's sort of a big base phase, right? Think of it as laying down the foundation for your house. And then we do some dressing up after that for another several weeks and then into our third phase where we do a ton of sharpening up because one of the things we did, Michael, in phase two was we did a time trial where we tested a 1K and a 100. I want to test the athlete. That's, and a 1K in swimming is equivalent to about a 5K in running, okay? And um, so we do a 1K swim test and a 100 swim, swim test, so a little bit of endurance and a little bit of speed power. Let's just see what you have. And then we will come retest that again during phase three, we spent a few weeks sharpening up the athlete and getting them ready to race a fast 1000 on, on a very powerful 100. And that's all about being able to swim fast and have some pretty good endurance. And that's a way of measuring if we as coaches did a good job at what we said we we're going to do, make you a better, stronger, fitter, faster swimmer. And if we don't, then you should fire us. Then we're not the right coaching operation for you. So that's phase three. It's a shorter phase, several weeks long. 
And then by that time, we're into the racing season. Season is full go here, at least in uh, where we're located in Southern California. Many races have just started up, and we're going into that May, June, July, August, September. You know, the bulk of your triathlon racing season. So we go into phase four, which I call, it's more of a um, skill open water skill acquisition phase, where we introduce an open water session, uh, a weekly beach session, and that's a minimum of one session a week. We do have some others for our pro athletes and elite age groupers, but this is our one key session that we want to make sure that all our athletes come to. And Michael, in that session, we run a fairly intensive open water workout while simultaneously completely changing the complexion of our pool workouts. Our pool workouts would go from what would be almost classified as a very typical swimmer training type swim sets to very, very different pool swim training sets. They would look, the complexion of the swim workout changes enormously during this phase. And in this skill acquisition phase, we're teaching athletes proper sighting, obviously navigation skills, how to sight properly, how to draft, how to be comfortable in packs, what it feels like to be hit and be able to maintain composure. All, you know, all the ingredients that you, uh, all the effects that you experience during your race. We need to introduce that into our training so we can become familiar with it, right? Yes, and, and to clarify, you do those race-specific workouts in the pool just as much as in the open water, right? You do those pack swims and and uh, climbing out the pool and, and running in place and, and those sorts of things in the pool environment and practice that inside. Well, in fact, it's all done in the pool. And then we have the one open water session where they can actually go practice it in the real arena where the competition is. But we don't have the luxury of running all of our sessions in open water. Plus, we would never want to because we need a more contained environment to be able to teach the skills. So the skills are actually acquired in the pool. And then we go put them to test once a week in open water. So that phase runs about six weeks. We run three two-week cycles. And then by the time that's over, we're into June. It's our racing season. So it's our biggest phase, our last phase. We call it the race ready phase. You're ready. Any race you do from June forward through October, you are at prime condition. So June, July, August, September, October, four or five months, that phase, our race ready phase, you are prepared. And all 100% of our workouts are very, very specific to triathlon open water swimming. All pool and all beach sessions, very, very specific to the needs. Here would be an example. Maybe in the pool, Michael would swim 10 200s as your main swim set one day. Well, we will do that during the race ready phase, but the 10, the complexion of how we swim at 200 would be very different than how we swam it in the months of January, February, March, or even April. Those 200s would be very different. We would dive in. We would swim the first 50 very fast. It'd be three sightings per 25. We'd then back down in speed on the middle four lengths, maybe back down the sighting to one or two sightings per length. Then we'd swim fast the last 50, sight maybe one or two times more frequently. And then at the end of the swim, the end of the 200, hit the wall and climb up, stand up immediately and jog for 10 seconds. So we've just incorporated the start of a race, fast swimming, frequent sighting at the very beginning, settle in speed, pick up the pace again towards the end, sight more frequently, stand up in the water at the end of our, you know, when we run to the transition area, practice 10 seconds of running on the pool deck or stand up uh, stationary running, all the things that are going to occur in your 30, 40, 50, hour and a half Ironman swim or half Ironman swim or Olympic distance or sprint, whatever it is, we try and put all those ingredients into every repeat so it becomes extremely pointed, very specific. That sounds very good and it also sounds very hard. 
So one more question that I have about swim training for triathletes is the architecture of workouts. Can you go into into that a little bit and tell tell us what the architecture of a good swim workout should look like? So it does vary a bit, but generally the overall architecture stays the same and it's it's rather simplistic. So let's just use an hour time frame if you have a, an hour allocated in your time budget to swim. You'll have your basic go in and easy, low output heart rate for 10 minutes just to warm up your muscles. And then we'll go into 10 or 15 minutes of uh, something that's fairly technical where we're having the athlete focus on proper swim mechanics and form. So we would give them a couple of key things to think about, present with. But while doing that, we also have created a swim set that would have them graduate heart rate slightly. So their efforts may start off at 50 or 60%, and then they would graduate every five minutes or so to 65 to 70 to 75 to 80% effort, 85% effort. So at the end of the second phase of warm-up, remember the first phase was just 10 minutes, the end of the second phase, you've now been swimming for 20, 25, maybe even up to 30 minutes, and you've graduated heart rate, you've done some technical things, and now you're fully warmed up. So the body's primed, and it's ready to absorb what the demands of that specific workout are, whatever the demands a coach needs. Is this a, a, what type of workout? Is it a highly intensive endurance session? Is it high interval based? Is it speed based? Is it a combination of all the above? Whatever it might be, you're now fully ready and primed to execute what's needed. So simple, three things, easy warm up, a little more warm up with graduated heart rate and something technical, and then get your ass to work. Any cool down? I think cool downs are totally overrated. And when we have a small time budget, they're not needed. The only time cool downs are, that are needed that have a physiological benefit after highly intensive sessions, and on a highly intensive session would be 1050s diving off the blocks, five-minute interval, going max effort, or three-minute interval, whatever, going completely max effort. We're completely ballistic. We don't do those types of workouts at any sort of frequency in triathlon training, so there's no need to do tons of warm down. Okay. So we were talking before the show about the subscription-based swim program that you're going to launch very soon. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that? You know, once it was interesting, Michael, once we started these podcasts, the thing that became apparent to at least the listeners that we have is the need for very precise workout sessions that are tailored to the needs of the triathlete. And we listen to our audience and we therefore have decided, you know what, why not? This is what we do for a living. This is the service we provide to our members. We have tremendous returns every season from especially in the beginners that come into their first year triathlon. Any, any of those in the first two or three years have tremendous improvements from our program. And, uh, and, and the types of athletes that we get that come into our program after they plateaued have found that they've gotten tremendous results in that, especially the first year. So what we've done is we created a, a built out a software program that where a subscriber can do the exact same workouts, exact same. There's not one variance of difference from what our athletes are doing in our pool workouts and beach sessions. So for instance, uh, whether it's a professional athlete from whomever, from Lionel Sanders or Meredith Kessler or Holly Lawrence that swims with us, whomever these are, these athletes that I coach, all the way to somebody who just started and said, I'm going to do my first triathlon this year. We obviously have a, a customized workout for each of those because the amateur that's now starting cannot do Holly Lawrence's workout or, or Lionel Sanders's workout. So it gets customized down to their level. But those workouts are what we're delivering in a package 
several times a week for our listening audience. And that'll become available. It's wrapped up right now. In fact, we have 15 beta testers testing it this week and next week, and then it'll be fully available February 1st. Okay, so let's roll into the rapid fire question segment. I got three of them for you today, Jerry. So let's start with number one. What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon or swimming? You know, I went through a phase in my career where I read everything. I was just in this mass consumption phase. And um, I've found I've moved away from that. And now I just skim a little bit of many different things. But I no longer have sort of a favorite. I mean, I've, I've, I've followed so many coaches and learned from so many coaches and athletes. I'm just not in that place any longer. I think there are terrific resources out there. I think Matt Dixon has a wonderful book. The Well-Built Triathlete, I, I believe. I think Jim Vance has some good material out. So I think there, Paul Newsom does a very good job with his Swim Smooth uh, operation. So I think there are terrific resources out there for many, many triathletes and coaches. Yeah, I agree. All of those books, the ones by Jim Vance, Matt Dixon, and Paul Newsom are, are really, really excellent. And I've interviewed both uh, Matt Dixon and Jim Vance for for the show as well. So it's been uh, really great to hear what they have to say about their books as well. Oh, I'm in good company. Those are all terrific, uh, terrific guys. Yeah, well, and I would say that they are also in very good company with you being on the show. So next question, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? You know, wonderful question. And again, it's something that my dad taught me when I was a kid. And I've been able to apply it throughout my athletic career when I raced and I've done it with coaching and it has yielded incredible benefits for me. And that is to be 100% present. Excellent. And finally, what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some point in your career? <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of one of those questions that we can always go back on, on whether it's in your swimming career, your personal life, your family, you know, your, your job, whatever it is. I don't really operate in those terms, Michael. I believe because I'm 100% present and I'm human, I am always going to make mistakes. I take those mistakes as part of, of life. I know they weren't intentional. I wish I hadn't made many of them, obviously, but that's part of of growth and part of progression of um, civilization. So I'm sure I've made many, I know I've made many, but I don't think in terms of I wish I hadn't, or I, we always wish we knew 10 years out what, you know, what we're gonna know then, we wish we knew it now, but that's just not how the world works, at least not in my mind. So once I'm 100% present, I'm doing the best I can, I tend to have no regrets. I just wish I didn't make some mistakes, but I say, okay, I made that mistake, I own it, I recognize it, just go fix it, dude. Don't do it again. All right. I guess I have to accept that answer. So um, thank you again, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's a bit disappointing because I'm trying to ask kind of the similar questions to all guests and, and guests and try to start to observe trends in, in their answers so that myself and the listeners can learn from them. So thank you, Jerry, so much for coming on the show. I learned a ton, and I'm sure that the listeners will as well. So well, I appreciate yeah. you you even contacting me. I know we've corresponded over the last year, and, and um, it's good to see your, your success and, and, and the growth that you, you've had. It's so important for listeners to have a, a resource like yours. So really, congratulations, and, and keep up the fantastic work that you're doing. 
I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Jerry. I certainly enjoyed talking to him. And one request that I have for you is really is that you apply this new knowledge that you learned and in your own swimming, because that's the only way ultimately that you are going to get real results by trying these new things that you learn on this podcast, not just in this episode, but in any other episode. You need to to take some action on your own to become a better triathlete. And that's my goal for this podcast, to make faster triathletes all around the world. So do go ahead and try these things that Jerry mentioned. My main takeaways from this interview, make swimming simple. The three-part framework that Jerry uses with tautness, alignment, and propulsion really helps do that. And I have a personal success story about that, actually. After listening to one of the Tower 26 podcast episodes, where Jerry talked about really keeping your wrist super firm and not petting the kitty, as he calls it, that helped me really use that firm wrist in the catch phase of my stroke. And I immediately managed to shave several seconds off of my swimming paces per 100 meter just by just by using that one little tidbit of information so super grateful for that and the other takeaway is presence because that's something that really resonated with me i'm big on presence when you do a workout you will get definitely the most bang for your training back if you are really present in that workout and that goes for easy workouts as well as hard workouts every workout serves a purpose and you need to be present in that moment to really be able to fulfill that purpose that you have for the day's workout and one more thing that i should mention is that this interview was pre-recorded but by the time you listen to this episode the swim subscription programs of jerry's will be released so go to tower26.com to find out more about that and see if it's something that would interest you that's it for today's episode remember that you can go to thattriathlonshow.com to get all the show notes from the episode, all the links and resources mentioned. And again, if you like the show, please, please tell your friends about it. And remember to enter the contest to win a $50 Amazon gift card that you can spend on anything you like. Just go to thattriathlonshow.com and follow the instructions. You simply need to subscribe to the show and rate it and review it, and you can enter to win that gift card. On the next episode, we'll talk to Wendy Mader, who is a very experienced, very good coach. And she's also a former age group Ironman world champion. And the show is geared very much towards beginner triathletes next time. It's all about getting started in triathlon and swimming, biking and running. But Wendy has so much to say and so much wisdom from her years of experience that I truly believe that there's something some nuggets of wisdom for everybody there, no matter how advanced you are. I know I got a lot of value from it. So all of you, tune in next time and listen to Wendy. And I'll see you then. Until then, keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.